Welcome to our podcast for a concept lecture of topic two, and that considers the concept of jurisdiction. These concept lectures are by no means exhaustive, and they're not a substitute for careful reading of your textbook and the online material contained in your subject site, which is very helpful to you, particularly when you're considering preparation for your assessment. Uh, what I'm going to try to do is just draw together some of the key concepts that you'll need to understand and to try and exemplify some of those um, as we work through them together. It's good when you're listening to these podcasts if you have the opportunity to have the legislative provisions open before you and just to perhaps pause it, have a look at the legislation I'm talking about and then go back to listening. So in this topic, we're going to expand on the concepts of original jurisdiction, which were introduced in topic one, and we'll consider which court has jurisdiction to hear the many various types of proceedings that we might want to commence. With nine different court jurisdictions in Australia, determining which court is the appropriate forum in which to sue can be a bit of a minefield. And determining uh, the correct jurisdiction for your hearing is absolutely critical because each jurisdiction has its own procedural rules that can be advantageous or disadvantaged to the client. Um, and furthermore, too, in applying the territorial law, substantive law or principles of the particular state or territory can also significantly affect the client's rights. Commencing in the wrong jurisdiction means you might be faced with an application to transfer the proceedings to the correct jurisdiction, which has cost implications, or worse, you might have a determination made that's simply unable to be enforced. Now, before we get into this, a quick word on how the Uniform Civil Procedure Law and the Uniform Civil Procedure Rules fit with all of this. There's a lot of legislation floating around this subject. <laughs> um, now, this Civil Procedure Uniform Law commenced in July 2005, and the intention behind that legislation was that for all of the jurisdictions adopting the uniform regime, the Act and the procedure rules will apply. Now, the regime has been adopted in New South Wales, in Queensland, and the ACT, but sadly not adopted in the other states and territories. And it was envisaged that with the commencement of this, practitioners would only need to consult a single source, namely the Civil Procedure Rules or the Civil Procedure Act, in connection with how court proceedings would roll in their territory. And this would be irrespective of whether the litigation was in the Supreme Court, the District Court or the Local Court. Now, the legislation where it is in effect, uh, has basically repealed a significant amount of the respective court acts in each jurisdiction where it's adopted. So if you take a look at the District Court of New South Wales Act, for example, you'll see that there are a number of provisions that have been repealed. And that's because the Civil Procedure Act now applies. So under the Act, the jurisdiction of the courts essentially is unchanged unless it's expressly provided for in the CPA. And the inherent jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is expressly preserved. Um, have a look at Section 5 of the Civil Procedure Act. The jurisdiction of other courts are um, also still to be found in their respective court acts and legislation. And the consent jurisdictions of these courts has been increased significantly. Well, what happens if there's an inconsistency between the Civil Procedure Rules and the former court rules? Well, in that instance, the Civil Procedure Rules will apply. Um, Section 11 of the Civil Procedure Act provides for this. 
It's also important to be aware of such things called practice notes in the hierarchy of procedural rules. Now, practice notes are issued by the courts and they're designed to complement the uniform rules by covering procedural gaps, dealing with matters particular to that court and providing greater detail and specific um, information, particularly in respect of lists in which they operate. So each court will have different lists and may have procedural practice notes that apply to how that list will operate. Uh, practice notes can now be made as legislative instruments under Section 15.1 of the Civil Procedure Act, and it constitutes a form now of delegated legislation. Now, after the Civil Procedure legislation was implemented, the courts went through the process of reviewing and rewriting many practice notes to take into account the new uniform rules, their operation and their language. And this was good because it uh, rationalised and reduced the number of practice notes that were flying around between the courts. So, for example, the Supreme Court in New South Wales reduced its number of practice notes from 63 down to 25, and the District Court of New South Wales, there are less than 10 practice notes. So it has made things a lot simpler. And you'll see when you look at the court's practice notes, if you go onto the court websites, that they'll often refer to the practice note being made in accordance with the provisions of the Civil Procedure Act. Let's now turn to the issue for topic two, and that is jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is tricky, make no mistake about it. It is complicated, but it's important. Within jurisdiction, we're going to consider firstly, subject matter jurisdiction, and then secondly, territorial jurisdiction. We're also gonna to briefly touch on in this concept lecture, the jurisdiction of the High Court and Federal Court, the state courts, which you can largely read about in your textbooks, and I don't really intend to regurgitate all of the provisions here, but I do encourage you to read the online material and your textbook. I'm just going to highlight the main points. Finally, uh, the important part of this topic, particularly considering assessment, is the introduction of how cross-vesting legislation operates. And this is a legislative scheme that essentially vests jurisdiction in courts that are part of the scheme. And as a part of that, allows the easy transfer of matters between courts across jurisdictions. Now, when we talk about jurisdiction, we're talking about whether or not a court has power to hear and determine the matter before it. Each court has legislation that creates it and vests it with what we call original jurisdiction. And that means the power to hear certain matters at first instance. In addition to this, some courts might be granted appellate jurisdiction, and that's the right to hear and determine appeals from lower courts, both within their own court structure and lower in the court hierarchy. All state Supreme Courts and federal courts have both original and appellate jurisdiction, and they have practice rules that govern the making and form of appeals in each. As uh, further subcategories of jurisdiction, we're going to also consider the notion of subject matter and territorial jurisdiction. Subject matter jurisdiction um, and territorial jurisdiction can also determine whether a court has the power to make binding judicial decisions in a matter. And it is uh, basically the scope or the reach of the court's power and authority to determine a matter and to enforce its orders. For a court to be lawfully able to have jurisdiction in a matter, it has to be able to have the power to hear what the matter's about. That is subject matter jurisdiction. And it must have territorial jurisdiction also, the ability to enforce its court orders. 
Now, let's start with subject matter jurisdiction. This basically refers to what the litigation is about. It's the basis of the cause of action, what legally characterises the dispute between the parties. Certain courts are vested with subject matter jurisdiction. So let's take an example. The local court in New South Wales can hear civil matters, so civil disputes, but it couldn't, for example, make a determination about refugee status under the Migration Act. And the reason for that is that that jurisdiction specifically falls to the Federal Court of Australia or the High Court under the appropriate federal legislation. Thus, we would say the local court does not have subject matter jurisdiction to make determinations in this area. So too, the local court doesn't have jurisdiction concerning planning and approval over land matters because as subject matter jurisdiction, that falls to the Land and Environment Court because of specific legislation conferring those powers on that court. So how we determine subject matter is often largely determined by legislation, both at state and federal level. In addition to this, there are monetary jurisdictional limits that apply to the various courts that we have to keep in mind. So whilst your subject matter might fall within a particular court's jurisdiction, it might not be able to hear the matter because of the amount in which the claim is in dispute. So in New South Wales's local court, for example, they can hear cases of personal injury, but there's a monetary jurisdictional limit of $60,000 on those types of matters have a look at Section 29 of the Local Court Act of New South Wales. This provision provides a monetary limit of $100,000 for the general division of that court, which is where you would hear personal injury matters, and $20,000 when sitting as the small claims division. Section 29, subsection 2, though, puts a cap on personal injury proceedings and allows the court to determine those up to $60,000 in the court's general division. Thus, the subject matter jurisdiction concerns not only what the proceedings are about, but also concerns what they're worth in terms of monetary value. So let's try and take an example. Say I have a personal injury matter founded on a faulty product. My damages are worth approximately $200,000. My cause of action might be characterised as a breach of contract in the sale of the good and taught in negligence. What jurisdiction do I commence in? Well, monetary jurisdiction-wise, this case falls within the district court's jurisdiction because it exceeds the local court's amount of $60,000. And the district court's jurisdiction set out in Section 4, Subsection 1 of the District Court Act, which provides that that court can hear and determine common law claims, which is what this is, up to $750,000. Now, in some circumstances, the jurisdictional limit can be extended a defendant can provide consent to the district court having what we call unlimited jurisdiction and the plaintiff concedes the defendant's consent to the district court hearing the matter irrespective of the monetary outcome. This is usually made known at the commencement of proceedings by the filing of a memorandum consenting to unlimited jurisdiction, section 51 subsection 2a of the District Court Act. But again, that is capped to an additional 50% above the jurisdictional limit of the court, section 51.2b. So what that means is the district court has the power, if the parties agree by consent, to increase its jurisdictional limit from $750,000 maximum to $1,125,000. If your case is worth more than that, so for example, a large personal injury case where someone's catastrophically injured, say paraplegia, etc., 
these cases end up in the Supreme Court, which has an unlimited monetary jurisdiction. Now, subject matter jurisdiction in the district courts further defined by Section 44 of the Act and says that the district court can hear any matters that the Supreme Court's common law division would normally hear and would not exceed the jurisdictional limit. Um, those matters that the Supreme Court can hear will include all sorts of things such as personal injury matters, professional negligence and so forth. The district court does have some equitable powers to make equitable orders, but usually if you're looking for an equitable remedy, you will be going to the Supreme Court in the equity division of the court as distinct from the general division. Let's consider now the federal courts. Well, the federal court's original jurisdiction exists under Section 39B of the Commonwealth Judiciary Act. The federal courts can determine only those cases that the Constitution gives the federal government power to make laws in respect of, or that the Constitution determines the court is able to hear, unless it's a family law or high court jurisdictional matter. Thus, federal courts determine the issues that raise federal law issues. The court also derives original jurisdiction from Section 19 of the Federal Court Act, and this is conferred pursuant to Section 77, subsection 1 of the Constitution. Have a look at these provisions because it will help piece it together for you. Section 39B of the Judiciary Act defines the scope of the court's original jurisdiction, and 39B1A was inserted into the Judiciary Act in 1997 to significantly expand the original jurisdiction of the federal court and its workload. Subject matter jurisdiction of the federal court, therefore, is determined as to whether the subject matter involves an error of law that the federal government has power to legislate on or where the constitution is concerned. Now, in our personal injury case example a moment ago, let's make it a little bit more complicated and assume that the injury was suffered because of a defective product. And not only are we suing in contract and tort, but let's say that this raises as subject matter a breach of part three to five of the Australian Competition and Consumer Law, which uh, covers defective and faulty products manufactured by companies. Now, this is a piece of federal legislation, but my case is worth $200,000. So what's the correct jurisdiction to commence the proceedings in? Well, it's complicated because Section 19 of the Federal Court Act says that the Federal Court does have original jurisdiction, i.e. the ability to hear those matters, that any uh, legislation by Parliament says it has the entitlement to hear. So that means then that we have to go to the Australian Competition and Consumer Act, and it is a piece of federal legislation. If we go to Section 138, that Act notes that the Federal Circuit Court has exclusive jurisdiction to hear claims arising under Parts 3 to 5 of Schedule 2 of the Act and that the um, Section 138, capital A, limits the monetary jurisdiction to $750,000. Now, Section 138A and B also confers some jurisdiction on state courts, namely the Supreme Court, but not on the inferior courts of states. So our matter no longer can be litigated in the District Court of New South Wales because it looks like the federal court is given exclusive jurisdiction under the statute and in some circumstances the Supreme Court. So as you can see, determining which court we would need to litigate that matter in is quite complicated and requires us to look at the nature of the cause of action, the territory or the place in which the cause of action arose 
and whether there is any legislation that's going to apply in determining that cause of action. We then go to that legislative instrument and see if it confers jurisdiction on a particular court as the Australian Competition and Consumer Legislation does by way of example. How about state courts? Well, due to their history, superior state courts, i.e. the Supreme Courts, um, have what we call inherent jurisdiction. Now, the Supreme Courts of each territory and state have very wide-ranging powers to hear civil disputes. Section 23 of the Supreme Court Act of New South Wales, for example, requires that the court have the jurisdiction to hear uh, what all matters that may be necessary for the administration of justice over matters in New South Wales. That's very broad. But note that the subject matter of a civil dispute has to have some connection to New South Wales to be heard in the Supreme Court of New South Wales. Under their constituting leg legislation, the courts also have extensive power to deal with all types of cases subject to the legislation conferring that power on another court or tribunal. So, for example, the Land and Environment Court or requirements for administrative reviews to go to NCAT. State courts uh, can also not hear matters where exclusive jurisdiction is conferred on a federal court. So, for example, pursuant to Section 109 of the Constitution. So the judicial power of the Supreme Court is broad, but it may be reduced or may be enlarged by legislation. What about the High Court? Well, let's consider the top of the court hierarchy and how the High Court works. Now, this court is vested with what we call original jurisdiction under Section 75 of the Commonwealth Constitution. Uh, that is, the High Court has the power to determine all matters arising under treaties, affecting consoles, uh, in which the Commonwealth is a party, either suing or being sued, uh, between states, where there's a dispute between states or residents of different states between a state and a resident, and where there's a writ of mandamus or prohibition or injunction sought against an officer of the Commonwealth. These are the areas the High Court has original jurisdiction in. Under Section 76, Subsection 1 of the Constitution, the Parliament uh, enacted the Judiciary Act, and this legislation conferred on the High Court um, original jurisdiction to hear constitutional matters, or matters that involve the interpretation of the Constitution. Now, indeed, this remains um, the bulk of the High Court's workload today, in addition to its appellate jurisdiction. And what this means practically is that any case that's commenced in any other jurisdiction in Australia, such as the federal court, that has a constitutional interpretation issue, means that that matter is most likely going to be removed to the High Court on an application of one of the parties pursuant to Section 40 of the Judiciary Act. Conversely, under Section 44, the High Court can on its own motion remit any matter that it sees fit to a relevant state or territory court. The High Court has what we call also exclusive jurisdiction that it alone can hear and determine. And this includes those areas listed in Section 38 of the Judiciary Act, such as matters arising under treaties, etc., which I have just explained. Uh, the High Court also has what I've mentioned previously as appellate jurisdiction, and that is it is the final court of appeal for all matters of law in Australia. Now, this jurisdiction is conferred under Section 73 of the Constitution, and it gives the High Court the power to determine appeals from lower courts that are where the court is exercising original jurisdiction of the High Court, uh, any federal court or court exercising federal jurisdiction, 
from any Supreme Court of any state, any state where an appeal lies in right to the Queen of Council and of interstate commissions on questions of law. Note in that list that it doesn't include district courts or magistrates' courts. And the reason for this is that the appellate process from those courts is not to the High Court. It's to uh, the Court of Appeal, usually, in the Supreme Court before it goes to the High Court. Now, under the Federal Court of Australia Act, Parliament has added further restrictions and exceptions to the High Court's appellate power. So, for example, there's no right to appeal from a single judge sitting in the federal court exercising original jurisdiction of that court, Section 33 of the Federal Court Act. Uh, what happens then if you want to appeal a judgment like that is that what you will need to do is go to the full court of the federal court first and appeal. Um, where a single judge is sitting as an appeals judge, again, the right to appeal to the High Court isn't automatic but requires an application for special leave to appeal to the High Court, where the High Court will determine whether or not it is a matter of law that it needs to adjudicate. Uh, special leave is also required for appeals from the full court of the federal court and from appeals for appeals sorry, from the Supreme Courts, um, namely the Court of Appeal. Section 35 uh, regulates this. Now, special leave applications are fascinating processes to watch. It is unbelievable. They are done and dusted in 20 minutes pretty much and they are fast and furious. The High Court usually hears special leave applications with a bench of three and there are three lights basically sitting underneath the bench, a green light, a red light and an amber light. The green light means go, you start your application for special leave. The amber light's an indication that your time is nearly up and when the red light flashes, then the council presenting the application for special leave must cease talking. The court hears these applications very frequently on circuits in the various jurisdictions and is fairly ruthless in making determinations as to what merits um, an appeal to the High Court and what matters the High Court should be adjudicating in terms of its appellate jurisdiction. So it's an interesting process, and if you ever get an opportunity to sit in on special leave applications, I encourage you to watch it because you really see short, sharp, clear explanations of the law um, and the court dealing with those rather quickly. Now, this type of jurisdiction concerns whether the court has the power to make certain um, orders over a party when we're talking about territorial jurisdiction. Um, that means that because of the party's location, the court has the ability to make binding orders affecting that party. The, often this area is shaped by whether the court has the power and tools available to it to enforce its orders. So, for example, the sheriff's office or the police, and it's referred to sometimes as in personam jurisdiction. This was considered in the case of Laurie and Carroll. Now, a defendant may be present in the jurisdiction and be subject, therefore, to the court's orders, or a defendant may submit to the jurisdiction of a particular court and state. Um, another aspect of territorial jurisdiction is the lex loci delicti, which is a fancy way of saying, essentially, that this is where the cause of action appropriately, appropriately arises. In other words, the contract was constituted here or the tortious breach occurred in this particular territory. And we see this considered in the case of Amcor and MacPac and also in the case of BHP and Schultz. Both important judgments have a read of that because they particularly concern this idea of impersonum jurisdiction and also the appropriate forum based on territorial location of the cause of action.
um, in both of those cases, the court had to grapple with what was the most appropriate forum for the legal proceedings to be heard when considering its powers under cross-vesting legislation. Now, a defendant can submit to territorial jurisdiction if they're not in the territory. They can do that voluntarily by filing an um, appearance or they can do it by way of implication in conduct. So if a party's conduct is incompatible with maintaining objection to the jurisdiction, then the party will be taken to have submitted to the court's jurisdiction. So for example, filing an unconditional appearance is taken to be submission to the territorial jurisdiction, see Perkins and Williams. A conditional appearance, however, done to allow you to dispute the jurisdiction is not submission to the jurisdiction. See United Group Resources and Calabro number four. Uh, sometimes contractual terms between the parties that state a specific jurisdiction is to be the jurisdiction of the dispute can be determinative and weigh on determining the correct jurisdiction. A defendant who is outside of the court's jurisdiction who's been validly served may cause the court's territorial jurisdiction to be expanded and that happens through the uh, Commonwealth legislation of the Service and Execution of Process Act 1992. This legislation was really important because it provides amongst other things that if a defendant's outside of a state jurisdiction but within Australia, the Act gives um, the state and territory courts territorial jurisdiction in respect of all other states and territory jurisdictions by allowing the service of legal process when it's served in accordance with the provisions of the Act. And this alleviates the need to make applications to the court for uh, leave, which means permission, to serve a party outside of the territory or the state in which you are commencing proceedings. This legislation basically, if you serve in accordance with the legislation, it effectively deems that service to be appropriate and bringing the party under that particular court's jurisdiction. So that's quite helpful and has certainly cut down on litigation time and expense. Let's consider briefly the cross-vesting legislation. Now this is really important and you'll need to read it carefully. If proceedings are commenced in New South Wales, but let's say concerns parties that are usually resident or domiciled in Victoria, um, and they regard, let's say, a contract that was formed in Victoria, then cross-vesting legislation may become directly relevant to determine the appropriate forum and to transfer those proceedings for uh, judicial determination in the appropriate forum. When we look at cross-vesting legislation, we need to examine the Jurisdiction of Courts Cross-Vesting Act of 1987, New South Wales, the Commonwealth Judiciary Act, the Service and Execution of Process Act of the Commonwealth and the Supreme Court Act. Bearing in mind, we need to also consider the effects of Re Wakeham, ex parte McNally, uh, 1999 High Court judgment, which essentially found the original scheme of cross-vesting to be invalid partially. Now, as I said before, starting proceedings in the wrong court might have serious implications, both procedurally and substantively, for your case. Each jurisdiction has the power to create their own courts and their own laws, and that means that different courts in different parts of Australia can determine different types of cases. The civil procedure rules have developed to reflect the fact that Australia is one country and that some certainty has to be given to governments and business to enable the conduct of their affairs nationally and within clear parameters. Behind this um, is the reasoning that promoted the cross-vesting legislative scheme, and it's in place for a number of good reasons. 
It's to ensure that parties don't exploit or abuse due process and fairness by commencing proceedings in the incorrect but most advantageous jurisdiction to them. In other words, forum shopping. Secondly, it's to allow business and commercial certainty to know, to know that, you know, if there is a dispute, then this is the jurisdiction in which it's going to be determined. So cross-vesting legislation only applies to the superior courts, not the inferior courts, namely the Supreme Courts of the state and the federal court. The legislation provides that original and appellate jurisdiction of each participating court can be vested in another of the participating courts. The participating courts, as your text notes, includes the federal court, the family court, and the supreme courts of each state and the family court of West Australia. The high court is not a participating court under the cross-vesting legislation. And this scheme took place from the 1st of July, 1988. The legislation allows the vesting from state to federal courts, and it originally also allowed um, federal courts to state courts. But the decision in Rewe Kim ex parte McNally challenged the constitutional validity of vesting federal courts with state court jurisdiction, the idea that state parliaments could not legislate to give powers to the federal court. Well, this was tested in, in the Rewe Kim case and the High Court held that this part of the scheme was unconstitutional. Um, under Section 77, Subsection 1 of the Constitution, the Commonwealth Parliament can make laws defining federal jurisdiction of federal courts, but only on federal matters, as set out in Section 75 and 76 of the Constitution. The Court also found that Section 77.1 was exhaustive and no other body but the Commonwealth had power to confer powers on the federal courts. What this meant was that the states had no power to confer powers or ability to determine things on the federal court. So the net effect of Rewe Kim was that it made part of the cross-vesting scheme invalid, namely the idea that federal courts would be vested with state power. So what cross-vesting legislation now does is essentially two things. Firstly, it gives subject matter jurisdiction of each of the courts in the scheme to each other. Secondly, the courts may, under the cross-vesting legislation, transfer matters from one court in the scheme to another court in the scheme, and they can do this um, on a number of bases, but one of those bases is if the interests of justice require. So, for example, if a case is commenced in New South Wales, but it should be appropriately maintained in Queensland, that case can be transferred on application of one of the parties pursuant to Section 5 of the Jurisdiction of Courts Cross-Vesting Act. Do have a look at Section 5 carefully and um, read and understand the criteria that are courts to consider in relation to whether a matter should be transferred. Well, what laws to be applied when a matter is transferred under cross-vesting legislation? Section 11 of the Act provides that the law to be applied by the court is the law in force where the court is sitting. Uh, so, however, if the cause of action arises as a right of action um, under a written law of another state, then the court shall apply the written law and unwritten law of that particular state or territory. Uh, another feature of the cross-vesting legislation to note is that Section 7 of the Act places a restriction on the ability to appeal cross-vesting case decisions, um, which means that essentially once a determination is made, there is no right of appeal. Um, appeals must be brought in the same system in the territory in which the original hearing took place. So you can't forum shop in relation to appeals if you don't like what the court at first instance has done with the case. 
do have a look at that legislation and the other legislation that's been mentioned. And obviously, if you have any questions, don't forget to pop those on the discussion board or in the Padlet walls in the subject site under each of the assessment uh, folders. Thanks for listening.